During this time, if you remember on televisions, there's a lot of uh, black and white. They were going after black people, and we were in that neighborhood, so we were worse than them. We don't speak the language, we don't have any directions, we don't have any skill, nothing. No relative, no friends, nothing. You're listening to the podcast, Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. Last fall, our team went to Northern Virginia to do some on-site recordings with families. I grew up in the area, and I still have family there. So when I was planning my trip, my brother Chris called me and recommended that I stop by a place called Present Restaurant, located off Arlington Boulevard in Falls Church, Virginia. He wanted me to meet his friend and business owner, Gene. My father passed away when I was two months old. Uh, he was uh, in the Vietnam War. He was fighting on the South on the American side. So he was trained here in Quantico. Gene was born Nguyen Thanh Binh, the youngest of two children, to a widowed mom. He was born into unfortunate circumstances, in a country at war and in a home with no father. And, um, um, you know, war happened. He passed. I was two months old. Irony is uh, a man uh, about to die in war uh, gave me a name, Wington, but mean peace. Life would continue to challenge his spirit and faith from childhood into adulthood. What I really loved about Gene's story is how he turned adversity into opportunity and opportunity into advocacy. During the war, my mom is a um, uh, military wife, so she followed my father, she got pensions and, and all of that. But when the war's over, uh, people like my family were considered sons and wife of traitors. You know, we go to school and I remember teachers, you know, yank me on the ears and calling names that, you know, your father was a traitor or, you know, names, things like that. Uh, after my father passed, my grandparents took me away from my mom. Uh, we live in Yagao. Um, it's in the south. It's in the south. It's a very deep south, a really countryside. During that time in Vietnam, when you are a man or a male teen, they'll draft you to go to war, fighting with, you know, all that. And, you know, my mom uh, just lost her husband. They didn't want to see her son's going to be the last of the descendants going to go away. So she does everything she can, you know, with the little power she has, uh, you know, to uh, find a passage for us to leave Vietnam. And when that happened, um, she couldn't afford to come with us, just me. I don't remember what happened, but I remember the part when she took me to a friend, a stranger I never met, and basically uh, she say, well, please take my sons and help him and make a man out of him. And then, uh, you know, she looked at me and I looked at her and I was about to cry, you know, seven, eight years mm -hmm. old. And she said, don't you cry. If you if you alive, I will find you. And then, and then, and then uh, you know, I, I, uh, I just grabbed the guy's hand, walking away, and, uh, and probably tear was going down my eyes, but you know, I was growing up with our father, so um, adversity and atrocity is a normal thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I face that every day in my life, so, you know, I mean, I don't live with my mother. The, I guess the bonding uh, for me to break away at that moment was a lot easier. And, um, you know, I believe in my mother because every, every year she promised she comes, she always comes. So, uh, you know, I believe her. And then, uh, you know, we left. Do you remember that journey at all? Oh yeah, I remember all of that for whatever the reason. Sometimes I wish I don't remember, but it's, uh, I guess it's uh, too dramatic, uh, too, too much drama. So I remember, I remember that we were on the, 
small little, they call it a boat, but it's not a boat. You know that. Small little canoe <laughs> trying, trying to cross the Pacific Ocean with it, you know. Yeah. Our people had no idea. So um, we were out in the water for about two days, maybe less, and the boat was filled up with water. So they had to turn back. So we turned back, and uh, the closest place they had to go in is Vũng Tàu. And uh, they knew there was the men on the boat, if they were captured, they might be executed on the spot or, you know, treated badly. So um, women and children have to kind of make scenes so we get arrested, so as many men can swim away as possible. Oh, to you know? distract. Yeah. Yes. So we had to sacrifice ourselves, so uh, we did that, and um, we were captured. We were captured, and then, uh, you know, my aunt were with me, and, you know, she hit some jewelry on the, you know, in, in our sleeve. So she used that to buy our way out of So I came home, and my mom was shocked. I was knocking on the door, and mom say, oh, my God. She, you know, first of all, she thought I was dead. Obviously, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And mom hugged and cried, and she say, we'll never do this again. She lied. We did it again, but this time as a family. So mom, I remember she sold her, our house, sold everything. And I remember she saw her small wedding ring. It's not easy that you want to leave, you packed up and leave, no. It costs a lot of money and it, you have to know the connections and, and all of that because the government is cracking down on that. Um, on the way, we were, uh, luckily we were rescued by uh, an American oil tanker. The, the storm that night was uh, on top. It's like one of these, the, the storm was just too much. My uncle was very talented trying to do the best he can, but you know, how do you go against mother nature, right? So uh, the, the, the boat, they say they follow us, and uh, they was not going to pick us up because mm -hmm. they were on their mission. But then they had to, or else we would, we would sink. And then, you know, the captain turned back, picked us up, saved us. Maybe a little bit of time later, he told everybody to come out, and the deck looked down, our boat was shattered, wow. you know, and it's right in front of your eyes, you know. Yeah. And the closest place or island that he can go to that accept refugee that time was Singapore. The year was 1979 and the Singapore refugee camp at 25 Hawkins Road was a former British Army barrack. It was established as a refugee camp the year prior in 1978 as a response to the crisis. In episodes number eight and nine, we cover in detail what living conditions were like at this makeshift camp. So in Singapore, uh, it was a smaller, I mean, it's, it's called a camp, but it's not. I mean, it's really small. I remember there's 20, 21 houses, a small community, and. Uh, People just live everywhere. They transfer us to uh, Galang, Indonesia Islands. And in Galang, we stay for several years. Several years? Yep, several years. I don't remember why, but mm -hmm. uh, we were there for a long time. So I remember in uh, Galang, Galang mm -hmm. there's one and two. Mm -hmm. Actually, the Galang three. The Galang three is the cemetery where people die. So I was in Galang High, Galang two. And um, uh, it's, uh, they divide into zone A, B, C, D, and each zone have many blocks. Each block have six barrack, and each barrack have 10 families. I remember everybody left. So I became the, the leader of the barrack when I was nine or 10 years old, and the block left of my family. Was, yeah, so we were the only one. Yeah. So, so the newcomers come, we would uh, take them and uh, you know, help them and you know, get food and you know, things like that. In 82, that we finally can come to the United States. I think there's an association um, uh, um, called USCIS. I believe that's what it called, would sponsor us to uh, then to come. But uh, I don't see them. You know, and life was uh, dramatically changed very fast when you come to the United States. 
I remember that uh, was very hard. My mother has been uh, mother and father at the same time, mentor and, and everything, and she's always motivated us, you know, so, um, you know, she's a fighter, but uh, it, it's very, very tough. If you look back right now and I, I say, wow, I don't know if we can do it. We were put in a very, very bad part of L.A., you know, in the hood. I grew up in there because, uh, you know, that's where they put us. I remember the, the rent was very cheap. It's like $200. You know, you had uh, metal uh, bars on the, on the windows and um, walking through the neighborhoods and you don't see your people. What were the different ethnic groups? Oh, it was 100% uh, uh, black neighborhood, mm -hmm. you know, black Americans neighborhood. It was uh, down in Crompton and it's uh, Crenshaw and mm -hmm. Pico and it was, it was very bad. It was very bad. So during this time, if you remember on televisions, you know, you're looking at all that uh, television during this time, it was a lot of uh, black and white. They were going after black people and we were in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So we were worse than them. We don't speak the language. We don't have any directions. We don't have any skill. Nothing, no relative, no friends, nothing. So all this time in refugee camp, so I miss, I never been to third, fourth, fifth, or sixth grade. So you come to the United States, you know, I was in seventh because grade. Because they put you based on age. That's right. So believe it or not, going to school and going home, it's a, it's a survival. No, it wasn't easy because, you know, they were going after you. I mean, you know, they picked on you kids. But, uh, you know, we were afraid, but then we had to plan how to survive. Everybody, all the Vietnamese during that moment, they was going to nail, uh, nail industry. It's easy enough for them to make money. Jean's mom was a teacher in Vietnam and also learned dental during the war to aid where she could for the military men and women. When they came to America in 1982, she started to work in the nail salon industry. This was right around the time when the industry was starting to boom in California, thanks to a famous actress named Tippi Hedren referred to as the godmother of the nail salon industry. In the late 1970s, Tippi recruited a beauty school to help train 20 Vietnamese women refugees to help them find a vocation. And then she was instrumental in getting them jobs after. This was the beginning of the $8 billion nail salon industry in America. And uh, it was hard for her because uh, you know, um, this is something very different, very new, and uh, we didn't have any money, so mm -hmm. she had to walk through that very dangerous neighborhood every day, catch in a bus, make a few transfers, go to work, and, you know, come home and walk at night. So it was, it was not easy. And uh, when we made enough, uh, mom connected with uh, her old teachers or, you know, people were in the military with my dad. At the time was teachers that teach at uh, somewhere in Boston, so we moved through Boston. So my mother took us and she went to Boston because she, she can finish her dental school. So she become, um, um, you know, recertifications mm -hmm. or whatever. But it was too hard. It was too hard. You know, she doesn't speak enough English and you don't have enough to continue with career. So we had to go back to California the next year. Life was very, very rough. Now I remember this is like 85, 86. Uh, during that time, Vietnamese are the, the small minority. We're small in number and we're small in size, right? And, uh, you know, we felt that uh, guys like us had to stick together to protect each other. So we had groups of friends that uh, somehow we become a gang or that they label them a gang or whatever. I don't remember. Were you up to no good? Well, no, it, uh, it depends on the, the, on the people. But during that time, we were still in high school. You know, mm -hmm. we probably in... Uh, 
sophomore, junior, or senior years, and uh, there was bad people, older people, come out and trying to recruit the kids and do bad things, mm -hmm. right? And the family was very poor, and um, you know, you see your mom and dad struggle so much, and then if somebody come and offer you a lot of money, like a lot of kids are very tempted. And we always keep them, hey, you know, be careful and, and all of that. So Chinatown was very close to us, so we were, you know, in a way lured into that kind of life also because these guys understand. Mm -hmm. They manipulate kids. They know what you want. They come out sometimes, they set up that um, somebody else pick on you, and then they jump down, they save you, and you owe them a favor. And, you know, in Vietnamese, when somebody doing something for you, you remember that, and you, you, you know, you pay back. You pay back sometimes yeah. 10 times, 20 times more than what they gave you. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, the older bad guys know that. So, you know, they were going after us. So we had to grow up very tough. You know, we had to face that life. We had to, you know, get together, use their power, leverage their power to protect us against the local bullies to get away from that. So either you were a gang or you an individual that everybody going to pick on. Yeah, a lot of fights, and I'm pretty sure there's uh, petty theft and, you know, whoever, whatever the, the older people control you to do. And then they will manipulate these kids, us, mm -hmm. until we're old enough. Old enough meaning you're 16, 17, mm -hmm. and you realize that these guys are using you. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, during that time, I think the Vietnamese gangs, uh, you know, a group, very tough. You know, a lot of my friends during that time, they don't even have their parents with them. They're by themselves. Uh, they call them the miners when they came to United States and Galang. And, uh, you know, those guys have uh, been taken advantage of. It was hard. It was, a, it was a very hard life. Then in 1988, after attending a cousin's wedding in Northern Virginia, Jean's mom decided to move the family to the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. The area is considered the third largest concentration of Vietnamese immigrants in America. The first two are Southern California and Houston, Texas. And uh, in 1988 was very, very different. We, my family, started the nail industry here. What was the first nail salon? Uh, it's called Nails For You. So I remember during that time there was two nail salons, one here and one in, in Maryland. Maryland belonged to Peter, Peter Ha. He was uh, one of the pioneers here. And uh, in Virginia, there's uh, just us. So we started, and uh, it was not easy. So did you work at the nail salon, or were you still in high school? Uh, no, I, I finished. I work at a, at a nail salon mm -hmm. now. So, uh, you know, I uh, do that, trying to make a living. I saw an opportunity that uh, you, you kind of figure that it's going to be like California. There's nobody knows about this. But during that time when I left, California had more nail salons than gas stations everywhere. So you figure it's going to happen here. But nobody knows that yet because th there's no internet. You know, nobody knows. So I knew that. I knew that Virginia is going to be booming. I knew that. I want to open as many salons as I can. So I felt that this is the first time ever in my life I have a head start. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Usually, I'm all the way in the back, right? But my mother said, no, we can teach people how to do this. And I said, Mom, oh my God, no, Mom, we... We don't want to co create competition yet. Give me a few years. Let me get a head start. And she said, no, let's open a school. And we fought back and forth, and I lost, of course. Uh, the reason she said that uh, for the many years we were in the refugee camp, she prayed God every night. If our ever family ever made it to the United States safe and we would have a decent life, she wanted to do something to pay back. And she said, there's nothing she can think of right now better than the nail industry because the nail industry helped our family, you know, get out of that um, terrible neighborhood. And, you know, during that time when we came here, there's no nail industry. 
Every immigrant who come to this country had an industry that was created for them to survive, to move on, to thrive, and you know, to um, assimilate with the community, right? And the nail industry was that for the Vietnamese. And so did you become an instructor? Well, right away, because uh, you know, my mom did not have a privilege to learn uh, English here in the United States, mm -hmm. so it's hard for her, although she's a teacher in Vietnam. And uh, you know, I have to help her with that part. As time go by, a few months later, she said, Good job. Now it's yours. Run it. <laughs> so uh, you know, I disagree with her, but then down a few years down the road, and I know that was my mission because we help thousands of people. I, last time I checked, a few years ago, I had twenty-two thousand students. So did you open more salons, or you just ran that school? Uh, because we uh, opened a school, I felt that it's really wrong to open a school, teach a student, and open a salon next to them to compete with them. Yeah. Maybe I was wrong to think of that. You wanted to empower them. To yeah, I want to help business. them, I want to teach yeah. them, and even today, we don't teach them how to do nail. I teach them how to walk my path. I mm -hmm. teach them how to, you know, first come here with nothing. No English, no education, no skill. I teach them how to quickly to assimilate. I teach them how to be successful so they can make enough money to support their family. You know, now people can learn from each other, but what I teach them and what I motivate them, it's different because I have walked from the very bottom up. And I was uh, struggle so much, and I was hoping that somebody would come, like you know, like in the movie, somebody would show up and uh, <laughs> save you. <laughs> nobody ever did. No, nobody ever did. But what it did is made me very strong. And, and then when it comes to people who needed help, you just obligated to help them because, you know, that's what you want, right? Mm -hmm. I think God some, uh, had some uh, funny humor about this, you know. Okay, you want uh, people to help you? Well, why don't you help these people? I always want to uh, be an entrepreneur. It's a phrase they say like, phi thương bất phú. That means if you're not a business owner, you're never going to be rich. You're going to be work for somebody, and uh, you know all Vietnamese understand that. So I opened the first coffee shop here called Cafe Yi Vang. So uh, we opened a coffee shop. We were very successful. Uh, with, uh, I brought all the, uh, the things I know from California. Mm -hmm. So Virginia, although we're very close to the capital, but things that happened in New York and California years before it's going to happen in Virginia, right? So you know this is before the internet. Now things are moving uh, quicker. So uh, we opened a very successful coffee shop. Because of that, I got a, in a lot of confrontations with the locals, Vietnamese local here. Why? Because uh, they felt that I was uh, the outsider. I was a Californian. I came here and I'm taking over the business and all of that. So my God, there was a lot of story. Um, we just sell coffee, very good Vietnamese coffee. And then uh, we have pool table, singing karaoke, and all of that. So daytime, I'm a, I'm a teacher, and nighttime, I run a coffee shop. So my mom <laughs> always uh, saying, I don't understand you, son. Today, in the morning, people call you the teacher, and at night, you hang out with all the gangster and everybody. I say, <laughs> Mom, they're not gangsters. They're just kids, you know. But, you know, a lot of fights, a mm -hmm. lot of trouble. A uh, lot of things happen in this community, and I watch this com community um, you know, before I got here, a lot of local gangs, they fight with each other and all of that. I felt that I uh, was the big part of fixing that. After the coffee shop, I opened a nightclub. I went bigger. Opened a nightclub. We call it Diamond Nightclub inside the Eden Center. So it was a very big. It was 10,000 square foot. So we uh, bring singers from all over, California, Paris by night, Vietnam, anywhere. 
and you know we had our community. So uh, it was a lot of fight, a lot of trouble. Um, you know, at the nightclub. Oh, at the nightclub. Mm -hmm. I remember we had to separate. Is my brother there? Of course. <laughs> Your brother is one of my best clients. Well, he's very decent. He's a very nice guy, but I was a great guy. Okay. <laughs> so he was more like um, a lover than a fighter. You know that, right? <laughs> So, uh, you know, we had to separate the Vietnamese uh, from Maryland on one side, the Vietnamese and uh, uh, Virginia on one side, and then finally talk to them and, you know, squash all of that. Now, we, I think this is very good. Jean was now running several businesses, the Nail Academy, a nail salon, and a nightclub in Eden Center, known as the largest Vietnamese commercial center in the East Coast. It was his experiences as a business owner at Eden Center where he started to expand his focus from business to advocacy. So the Eden Center right here, I would say, is the only plaza that represents Vietnamese um, here in Maryland, D.C., Virginia. This is probably the worst landlord we ever know. I mean, uh, if you look back on their records in the 70s, um, the, the, the owners of this, they, they were lawyers. They, earned, they owned the biggest personal injury law firm in Connecticut. They cheated thousands of client out of their money. They were federal indicted. They lost their license, they moved to Florida. So they uh, used Florida rules to protect their assets. And then they prey on um, community like us who uh, don't know enough about the law, don't have enough credit, have a lot of cash. So um, it was very bad. They didn't take care of the place. They was, uh, people just, you know, go in there. All they had the dream to open the business. And the landlord treated them really bad because they were lawyers. And Vietnamese was afraid of lawyers. And they, they know that. According to an article published in the Washington Post, the average retail rental rate in the Falls Church area, where Eden Center is located, was anywhere from $22 to $35 a square foot. At Eden Center, however, the tenants were charged $100 or more per square foot. On top of that, the tenants said they had to pay for their own building repairs and sewage was backed up, resulting in poor air quality. And that, of course, turned off the customers and resulted in reduced foot traffic to the shopping center. Jean began to organize community meetings with police and government officials. He invited business owners and residents to his nightclub to discuss their concerns. So, um, you know, we, we told them. I came in, I worked with them, and I'd seen all of that. So. In 2009, we, uh, I, I formed the Vietnamese American Chamber of Commerce with a lot of good brothers and sisters here um, to help Vietnamese merchants and community. Maybe uh, we can equal, equal out the level playing field, get some you know, fairly treated. We, we did some really good stuff with the Chamber of Commerce. So we came and we told the landlord, you need to fix it. You know, This is unacceptable. I mean, I have raw sewage run into our restaurant and it was just, just terrible. So we called the Washington Post. Washington Post came, agreed, did a huge story. They don't fix it, so I had to take them to court. In 2012, 16 Vietnamese business owners in Eden Center filed a lawsuit over conditions at the mall. At the time of the interview, Jean said the lawsuit is still going on. Jean also went in front of Senate to lobby for equal opportunity for nail technicians. According to a 65-year-old tax law that stated cosmetology and barbers could file as independent workers using 1099 versus W-2s. But at that time, the law did not recognize nail technicians as part of the cosmetology industry. 
This had many tax and employment implications on Vietnamese individuals whose livelihood depended on the job, but they were subject to hefty income taxes that left them very little to take home. Jean solicited the support from many large corporate executives and politicians in the area. And in March 2016, the bill SB 679 was approved and adopted, allowing nail technicians to have the same equal rights as cosmetologists. You know, Vietnam had a 4,000 year of history. We always been at war. China came over our country, took over the country for 1,000 years. 1,000 years is a long time. But we never lost our language. We never lost our culture. The French came for 100 years and, you know, all kind of war. This is the first time Vietnamese ever left Vietnam. And we left for a reason. Some people look at Vietnam and say, we lost our country. I disagree strongly. The country's still there. It's still there. The government changed. Nothing lasts forever. Even the Roman Empire got destroyed. I mean, so how long is the current regime going to stay? But because of 1975, people like us had spread all over the world. Today, Jean also owns Present Restaurant in Falls Church, Virginia, and Saigon Street at the MGM in National Harbor, Maryland. He is married with three kids, and he continues to advocate for equal rights for the Vietnamese-American business community. I asked Gene why he named the restaurant present. His response was simple. Don't dwell on the past. Don't agonize about the future. Live in the moment. Appreciate the present. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please, take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.